Hi, and welcome to the Addiction Solution Podcast. I'm Michelle Dunbar. Mark Sheeran and I will be talking today about the mind and the brain and what that all means for addiction. We wrote the Freedom Model for Addictions, Escape the Treatment and Recovery Trap, and the Freedom Model for the Family to help people to learn how they can solve addiction and move on with their lives. We offer an incredible opportunity to work with us directly in private one-on-one classes. You can learn about all of our products at thefreedommodel.org and soberforever.net, or you can call us at 888-424-2626. All right, this is one of those topics that can get really complicated, but we're going to try and simplify it. Okay, so um, I've been thinking about this mind-brain-body-life-experience connection um, since I was probably seven years old. I, uh, I don't know why I was always fascinated by human behavior. Um, maybe it was my upbringing. I don't know. But He was raised by wolves. I was. I was <laughs> with a whole bunch of people around me. Um, 11 siblings and a bunch of step siblings and and I guess it just it intrigued me because I watched all the people above me sort of behave in certain ways and that fascinated me Um, so what happens in treatment let me start this off by by talking about how how treatment teaches you um, that you're broken and what they're what they do is inappropriate because it's wrong it's simply false. And that is they teach you that you are your brain. And what they do in that argument without saying it is they imply that your mind doesn't exist, that your thoughts don't exist, that your volition, your ability to choose, that none of that matters in this thing uh, called drug taking or substance use or addiction or whatever term you want to use. So they spend a lot of time teaching you that your brain is hijacked, it's broken, that you will never be able to find happiness in any other way except for drugs um, or substances, drinking, that the biology of your brain has been altered in a way that specifically makes it impossible for you to feel happiness anymore. Um, And there's all different kinds of variations of this theory and under one umbrella called the brain disease of addiction. And um, our brain is constantly changing in various ways, and there's no doubt that drugs, substances, uh, when you use them at heavy toxic levels, um, that it, it can do brain damage, it can hurt your brain, it can hurt your body, the organs in your body. Um, it can make you sick, in short. I mean, yeah. it literally can make you sick. Yes. But, but here's where they take a leap. They go from um, basically the argument that you're toxic and in need of detoxification, for example, to somehow that toxicity creates a condition uh, where you can't stop yourself from using drugs or alcohol. Now, what I just did there was we started talking about behavior because behavior is when you're acting in the environment in some way. That's behavior. And behavior is also talking, socializing, um, thinking, all of these these emotions, being emotional. This is all part of that world uh, is behaving, right? 
and we're behaving, we're walking, talking, socializing within this physical realm. So what happens is they talk about the brain, which is this physical blood-ridden organ that's electrical and chemical in nature and protein, and then they start talking about behavior, and they just mix it all up into a big soup that becomes very confusing to people. And the way they do that, the way they confuse you, is by saying that your brain, because it has been toxified or sickened in a way, or injured, uh, or changed, that somehow that affects your thoughts and your behaviors, your desires, your emotions, and your impulse control, and the way you decide to take drugs and specifically they say it's changed in a way that you can't stop yourself from taking drugs you literally have no will um, so what they did is they mixed the brain with the mind but they never made the difference in the conversation they never even talked about the mind they just talked as if the brain and mind are one and this is all just in a big giant soup and your brain is the engine that's driving all of this behavior. So I'm going to ask the audience a very simple question. Uh, do you have a mind? Do you have a thinking apparatus? And do you think that's your brain? And most people when polled will say, yes, it's my brain. And, but here's the problem with that. A thought is not physical. And that kind of puts... A problem into the whole equation that people are very uncomfortable with. Scientists get uncomfortable, researchers get uncomfortable, but there's there's a group of scientists that are very, very comfortable with that, and that's the sociologist. The sociologist just looks at behavior. They're not looking at, uh, you know, the chemicals and the neurons in your brain tissue. They're not. They're looking at what you do, what, how you act, how you behave, what you think. They're interested in your thoughts. They interview you. They look at behavior, the actions, and volition. They look at all of these things, and they observe it. And it's a science. It's a social science. It's looking at how people behave, and that's what I am. I'm, I'm a sociologist. That's what Michelle is. We're human behavior researchers. And so uh, it's no less of a science than neuroscience, right? There's pieces of this puzzle that when you put it all together makes a tapestry called the human condition. And, and so what I want to do is I want to talk today about the different pieces and how they work in a symbiotic relationship with each other. Uh, and so I'm going to make this very simple to start off with. We're going to simplify the mind-brain-body-environment connection, Okay. So um, before I go down this path, did you want to jump in with anything? Nope, you're I'm gonna, good. <laughs> all right, I'm going to domineer the conversation here for a minute because <laughs> I have to set the stage so you understand what I'm talking about. So when you decide something, when you make a choice, what you're doing is you're thinking. Now nobody, nobody understands what a thought is. I don't. No sociologist does. No neuroscientist does. No psychiatrist does. And if they say they know what a thought is, they're full of shit. Okay? So we don't know what a thought is, but we all have them. 
they're self-evident truths. Continuously. Continuously. You're always thinking. And then we have an apparatus that's physical. So we have a metaphysical apparatus, thinking apparatus, called the mind. That's thoughts that I just described. And metaphysical is just Latin for beyond the physical, right? So we have this thing where we have thoughts that are not physical. I think we all agree on that. And, uh, and nobody knows what they are. Then you have um, the brain, which is the processor. It's the hardware. So the mind is the software, the intelligence, and the brain is the hardware, like in a computer. It's the motherboard, um, for lack of a better um, analogy. And now people often ask me, well, Mark, if you have a mind and you can think, what do you need a brain for, right? That's a good question. Well, the problem is we have this meat suit called the body that's in the physical condition. It's in the physical arena of the world, and we have a physical planet that we live on with grass and roads and all these things, and we behave within that physical realm. So what you need is a mind that is your thinking apparatus that is volitional, right? It, it makes choices. You make choices. You are your mind. That's where you experience life. And you make a choice, and then you need to be able to act that choice out in the physical realm. So you need a body for that. Well, the body's useless without a processor that will take the metaphysical directions, process it in the hard drive, meaning the brain, and then that tells the arms and legs to move if you want to walk or talk or whatever it might be in the physical realm. Go to work and live your life. Now, all these things I'm talking about, I don't know why it's designed this way. I'm not God. I'm not the universe. I have no idea how all that was made, and that's beyond the argument of this podcast. The reason it's important to know that you have a mind and that the mind is the thing that is creating your life and lifestyle is uh, because that's never discussed in treatment. Mm-mm. They have it backwards. They say that your brain is in control, chemicals are in control, neurobiology is in control, and and that just simply rules you. And if you stick a bunch of chemicals in there, bad things are going to happen, and they're going to rule you. So then they go into the mythology that a drug has a mind and motives of its own. So what they do is they replace your mind with the mind, the illusion of the mind of a drug. And people don't ever parse all this out, but I did. I spent the time, 30 years, figuring all this out and realizing that that's what they're asking you to believe. They're asking you to believe that a drug somehow knows exactly what you need, fulfill that need, overtake your mind, your brain, all of you, and direct you chemically and make it so that uh, your, your mind is marginalized. Now... By ignoring the mind completely, that's not even in the equation. So you are just a minion of the mind of drugs. And that was Bill Wilson's great uh, contribution of his illness. <laughs> and that is that drugs are cunning, baffling, and powerful. So he created the drug mind, which is bizarre. So I want you to imagine something because I just, I just had this like picture in my mind of like a brain – right? A brain all by itself going into a liquor store. <laughs> and the like, and the brain sees the bottle of Tito's and is like, yeah, 
and Tito's is very excited to see the brain. And then you, but you're not involved. Your brain is just dragging you into the store, right? Right, right. And you're, you're neurobiology. It's shaking hands yeah. with the Tito's because right. <laughs> they're because that's what they do. Yes. And so, I mean, if you can imagine that you're like not involved at all. That you, your brain is just dragging you to the store. Right. And when she says you're not involved, she's saying your mind. Because you are your mind. That's Think about it. I want you to think that if you couldn't have thoughts, if you had no thoughts, what would you be? Right now, as you're listening to this, you have no thoughts. What are you? You are dead. You right. don't exist. Life is experienced in our mind, not in our brain. Brains don't think. They don't feel. They are merely a processor of the human mind. That is where you live. That is self-evident. It can't be argued against because we all experience it. I have never had a student of mine in 31 years say they don't have a mind and they don't think. That I've never... Right. That, that they're just be, of... Well, you know, a lot of... Unfortunately, a lot of mental illness is looked at this way Two, and that is that we are victims of this mind that, or this brain that's broken that has chemical imbalances and these different things. And you have to know that none of that is biologically shown, that it can't be measured in any kind of tests. Even, even in cases of schizophrenia, what they're finding is when they, when they test and they look for structural problems, right. it's, it's, it's a low incident rate of a schizophrenic with structural problems. Now, I'm not saying they don't have a problem. Right. They have a problem with living. They have a problem with how they perceive. With the way they think, the way they experience things, it's different than, than what most people experience. Their reality is a little bit different. Um, but the thing about the treatment industry and the thing about this way of thinking is it takes away the one thing that is crucial in being able to solve an addiction, and that's your ability to reason. That's exactly right. So if you're taken out of the equation, that's what treatment has done. You, you, your mind, which is you, are taken out of the equation. And, and when you start to believe this, yeah. you, you, then you're a minion of treatment, and that's why you feel hopeless. And you're a minion of the substances that you like. You're a minion of you know this brain that's broken and directing you dragging you to the liquor store or dragging you to the crack house um i mean do you does anyone honestly believe that that's happening see here's what what happens somebody walked up to you somewhere when you were 10 in health class and said clinical depression uh, addiction these words these conditions exist and you said oh okay okay uh, that and made, that they just happened to you. And it made sense because you didn't really think past what this authority told you, which is fine, right? We, we, we tend to believe the people that are uh, trained in this sort of thing. And I believed it. I, I believed it. Uh, yeah. I bought in. Um, but then I started asking questions, real simple questions like, is, what is clinical depression? And do you know what? Nobody had an answer. No professionals. They would they would come up with anecdotal stories. They would come up with uh, theories uh, theories of a chemical imbalance. I said, "How do you measure that?" Well, we can't. I said, "Wait a minute, you can't." 
no, we can't. We don't have a test for that. Then it started to ring true to me that, holy cow, you know, if, if there was a test for schizophrenia, wouldn't we give all our kids that test? If there was some clinical way to test for all of these disorders, wouldn't we test for them? That's what clinical means, that there's a test, that there's pathology, but there isn't. No. There isn't. So having a brain-centered model is faulty. Now, before we go any further, people, I'm really going against people's beliefs here. I know that there are some of you out in the audience that are shaken by this, that are saying, Mark, you're full of shit. That's nonsense. Right. My brain is broken. I, I felt it. I, I understand it. And we felt that way too, quite frankly. Well, we did. And, and here's why you feel that way, because the brain does have a role. So when you, when you think something depressing, negative, yes, yeah, you will, if you feel like all your options are futile, you will get depressed. So it starts with a thought, right? And then there is a physical manifestation of that feeling, but it's after the thought. Right. So the thought drives the neuroplastic change within your brain. So your brain does become change and adapts to a depressed, futile state of thinking. So I'm not saying that there's no effect or result of depression on the body. I've been so depressed I've had a gun in my mouth. I know. I almost jumped off a roof when I was 10 years old. I was just inches away from doing it. So I understand what it's, what it's like to feel absolutely futile in my decision-making and choices in life and, and feel that hopelessness and feel like I couldn't get out of bed and feel like I was just literally – at one point I stopped eating in fourth grade. I can remember I stopped eating. I went anorexic for about two weeks and because that's just how it started to manifest itself, my obsessions. And so I understand these types of things. But And I also understand that my body was affected. The brain tissue does change. It will adapt to these depressions. It will also adapt to drugs in various ways. So we're not saying that the body and the brain isn't somehow have, it doesn't somehow have a role. Of course it has a role. But it's a secondary role to the mind. It is a slave to your mind. It is a slave to your thoughts, beliefs, motives, drives. These are all products of the mind. Without a mind, what are you? Right? We're going to keep saying that throughout this, this broadcast because without a mind, you don't exist. You're in a vegetative state. And you know, if you've ever heard anybody say that they're brain dead, what they're really saying is you know, there's still blood pumping through the brain, so the brain isn't actually dead. That's right. The brain is a slave to the mind. They are mind dead. Yep. Now, we don't know with, a, with somebody who's brain dead where the mind goes. And sometimes when they come out of a coma or something they like that. talk about that. all kinds of things. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And sometimes they have a black experience where the mind just goes on uh, into dormancy mm -hmm. if the injury is bad enough. Um, some people have near-death experiences where the mind goes somewhere else and then comes back. I mean, there's all kinds of, of theories and ideas and experiences that people have where they realize their mind is not their brain and is not their body. Um, so, so... Here's why this is important. The only entity that really has any control and has full control over the situation of drug taking uh, is your mind. That's right. Is your desires, which are products of the mind. Um, and your brain, no matter how broken, 
And here's what's interesting. Let's say that you toxified your brain tissue with massive doses of crack cocaine. You didn't sleep. You were on meth, let's say, for a week, and you didn't sleep for four days, and you're going psychotic, and all of this is happening. Um, and and you, you feel like your brain is broken, and I've been there. Mm-hmm. You feel physically sick and toxified. Um, here's what's interesting. Right at the height of that is when a lot of people stop. <laughs> right when your when your brain is most changed, when it's most acclimated to exactly what you've been doing, is when you know most people decide. You know what? I think I'm done with this. Now I want to repeat this because this isn't a small point. This is a massive point. The theory, the brain change disease theory, is that because of brain changes that are induced by chemicals, you can no longer choose to stop. Yet, the same treatment professionals say you have to hit rock bottom before you stop. <laughs> which is? Which is when you the are... The height of brain change based on brain scans. <laughs> That's exactly correct. So here is a whole uh, group of people throughout mankind's history, millions who have hit bad spots in their lives where they are drinking a case of beer, drinking a fifth of, of Tito's a night. wasn't Tito's, you know. <laughs> Not back then. And, and it was, it was like <laughs> some um, nasty vodka. Yeah, yeah. Um, potato whiskey, whatever. <laughs> um, and, uh, and yet at the height of their misery, the, the height of if we were to take a slice of their brain, the most toxified with acetaldehyde, right, they're just pickled, their mind says, enough. Yep. Enough. The mind rules supreme. It completely bypasses this uh, diseased, quote-unquote, diseased brain, this broken brain, and the person just stops. Then we have to deal with physical toxicity, much like a poison control center. You would go to a a detoxification clinic and go through withdrawal. You come out a week later, and you're fine, and you move on with your life. That's in extreme cases. Most aren't that extreme. Now... You may go home and you're in the same exact situation that you were in prior to going into detox and you get this thought, hmm, I'm feeling better and this is exactly the time I would start drinking again. So you get the thought and the thought you can either, your mind can go one of two ways. You can either decide, you know what, I'm not going to do that right now and move on with your day. Or you can invest in that thought and then and maybe you invest in it because you're told you're going to have these terrible cravings, right? Right. And so so if you invest in it and then you start thinking, oh, yeah, getting drunk would be really good right now. And, um, and you go do it. Well, did you do it because you couldn't not do it or did you – or because your brain is – permanently broken even though you stopped you detoxed you're fully detoxed or did you do it because of habit and furthermore let me get philosophical again because that's what i do did your brain talk to your mind right and say you need to get drunk right now your brain did it drag you back to the liquor store is there two minds is there three minds now so do we have a drug that's got power and then your brain is telling your mind over here, uh, you gotta, you know, you're. I'm broken over here. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm broken. I'm your brain, and I'm broken. So I'm just gonna tell you what they to do. They tell you you need to be drunk right now. 
So, so you start to see that the drug is a lifeless substance. Fact. Yeah. Your brain doesn't think, act, feel. It doesn't uh, experience. It is a gelatinous to the touch sort of soft protein chemical electrical tremendous uh, organ filled with wiring neurons and electricity and blood that's what it is it's physical Um, so it is a slave to one thing you you and no matter how beat up the brain gets from drinking and drugging it never compels you to use. Now, people are going to jump to extreme cases, somebody with wet brain. But I'm going to argue, somebody with wet brain is still not compelled to use. They're still choosing. It's just their brains are so damaged in right, those cases. Right, that's traumatic brain injury. That's exactly right. But still, they're not compelled by some outside force. They are still the person in there. Right. But the brain tissue is so uh, damaged, pickled, chemically altered, that uh, decision-making is difficult for these people. Now, when people like that, we don't know what their mind is like since it's a separate entity. We don't know if their mind is still with it or how that works. Now, this is where we get into the complicated relationship between mind and brain that's beyond the scope of just about everybody I've talked to and even uh, neurologists uh, tend not to understand the relationship between uh, thought and the brain. So that's a rabbit hole I can't go down. I don't know how that works. But I just stick to the self-evident truths. I stick to the data that 90% of drinkers, 90.6% of drinkers, and more than 90% of drug takers quit whether they're treated or not, many of them at the height of brain change. Um, so we may as well toss the theory out that the brain is the thing that renders you uh, have, having a loss of control. Loss of control is a myth. People change their habits with boring regularity. That's a fact. This is something that most people don't know. Uh, the narrative is, is that nobody does without treatment. That's, that's a bold-faced lie. That's complete a simple, lie. total, mm-hmm. complete lie. You've been told a myth. And so, um, and our children are being taught it at young ages. Yeah, which is creating it. Yes, it's a, we can see that the problem has gotten worse over the last twenty to thirty years, based on the misinformation that is being uh, spread, like uh, nasty propaganda. Well, here, here, just look at the numbers. So, you have a disorder called anxiety. It's really not a disorder. It's a life. It's, it's just, a normal way of, like it's a normal part of being human. Right. And yet when we became, uh, you know, sort of dedicated to creating awareness for anxiety, uh, we see the rates increase. When we created suicide awareness, we see the rates skyrocket. When we see uh, awareness of PTSD, guess what? It rates Everybody increase. has it now. That's right. Um, and now with addiction rates, addictions last longer. They happen yeah. at a younger age and with more frequency since we have doubled down on treatment for it. Um, in other words, the more we obsess on the lies, the more we create them. And uh, maybe it's time to just ask ourselves whether we're willing to have uh, millions of people dying needlessly a year when we could just do what. I did, and that's, I started asking people who got over the problem, how'd you do it? 
Right. I think I think there's this assumption that that there are like certain people that are just happy by nature and, you know, their life is easier and they just see the world through rose colored glasses. And and I think that there's this um, just misunderstanding that that here's the deal. Life isn't easy for anyone. I mean, certainly there are people that have less um maybe less problems maybe they were raised differently right we Um, all have different circumstances we all have different circumstances but at the same time i really think that most people everyone at some point is depressed everyone at some point we look at the numbers of heavy substance use a lot of people more than half the people go through a period a phase of heavy substance use you know between the ages of like 16 and 25 Mm -hmm. um yet the vast majority of people get over it and move on with their lives and they probably qualified in there at some point as having a disorder the way we talk about it today um everybody goes through periods in life where they experience trauma because guess what everybody dies right and so you're going to lose somebody that's very close to you at some point in your life and um and that can be very traumatic for you a lot of people experience like trauma as children uh, either from their parents or from a close relative or siblings or what or society in general exactly yeah um so isn't it like for me when i started asking those questions was when i i first got like a bipolar diagnosis and i was a heavy substance user and they told me I had to take uh, lithium, which I had watched somebody close to me take and thought it was terrible. Um, and and then they told me I couldn't drink on it. And I was like, oh, well, then that answers that because I'd rather drink. Thank you. Um, but I started asking the question of maybe maybe I'm in control. You yeah. know, maybe yeah. maybe my mind... Maybe I, maybe I just have to work a little harder than some other people to be more positive and to look at things differently. I remember when I was a kid because all the cards were stacked against me in my family life and I was sort of a pick on and I was a sickly little kid and I remember getting into some really deep self-pity at points mm-hmm. uh, and feeling very justified in it um, and thinking, I, why does everybody else have such a good life? You know, yeah, and and there, let me tell you, just answer that question. That question does not have an answer. Your story is yours. The injustices of life will land in your lap, no matter who you are, at some point. And some people do have it easier. That's a fact. And some people have it worse. That's right. That's right. So it's it's all relative. And I had to make a decision. And at 18 years old, I decided I was leaving my hometown and I was going to build myself into something truly better and that's exactly what I did and anybody can make that decision anybody Um, but again that's a mindful uh, process so um, so yeah you 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 don't have you're you're not a minion you're not a slave to your biology right or your history that's right that's right. Now, real diseases, you are a slave to the some of the things that sure. are that are reality. Like I, I had, I've had cancer, and you know it sucks, yeah. you know, and and that's just a reality of life. Um, and uh, and your body can be hurt. Your body can be enslaved. You you that that's the reality of human living. But your mind is free. You get to think however you want to think about any circumstance in life and you can learn from experiences 
And certainly you can stop drinking and drugging if you think the happier option is to moderate or abstain like 90% of the drinkers do and more than 90% of drug takers do. That's a simple fact. Even with all this bullshit you're being taught, the human psyche is so powerful, the human mind is so utterly driven to be happier that by age 37, nearly everybody that drinks and drugs has either quit or matriculated out or aged out. The vast majority have already. Um, So from 25 to 37, we see a huge drop-off. And this is underreported. People don't talk about that. But as a sociologist, you look at it and you say to yourself, well, you know, uh, it's important to look at all the data and then ask people, how did you do it? Which is what we did. And who are the people that, you know, we get get a lot of people here, the average age of people coming to the retreat is about 50 years old. And so what we see is the people that continue to struggle into their 50s and 60s are typically people that have been exposed to treatment at younger ages and have been exposed. Now, it's in our culture now. It's culturally accepted that, you know, certain people are going to be addicts and certain people aren't. And it's crap. It's not true. And But because it's culturally accepted, once somebody in their mind identifies themselves that way as the addict or alcoholic and they think that they're broken they struggle longer they um and they give up sooner they give up trying to fix the problem so even if you're someone that has struggled terribly and maybe you've been to treatment or maybe you haven't maybe you just like took that on yourself thinking because you had your grandfather or whatever that had an alcohol or drug problem or something like that. You've just decided, oh, I'm that person. No, that you don't have to be that person. You can change at any point in time. You can actually just make the decision. I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You really can move on with your life. Uh, I want to make a side note here. People are going to tweak out. I, I have no formal training. I'm not a sociologist in the, in the aspect of uh, formal training. I never got any. Uh, for the last 31 years, I've just been studying. But just studied people. Yeah. <laughs> and behavior, yeah. specifically with respect to addiction. So, so read the And book. my training is actually in psychology. So it is in what they call it behavioral health. Um, and, uh, and so I know a lot about mental health. Um, but, but just been studying people with addictions. I just don't want people freaking out saying he, he said this, you know, cause people are weird that way. Um, so <laughs> if you have any doubts about, uh, how much work I've done, just read the, the freedom model for addictions. Oh my and gosh. I think you'll, you'll get it. <laughs> okay. So, um, yeah, it's so important. So this is all good news. Yeah. The, the good news is, is that you're in control. You, you always, always have been. And you always have been. That's the point. And you have a mind. You have a brain, you have a body, and we have this world in which we live, and they all work in a symbiotic relationship to, for you to navigate and figure out what your pursuits of happiness are. And if you read the freedom model and you go through the exercises that we have, um, you'll be able to navigate out of this problem, uh, problematic substance use, with ease, and knowing the truth clarifies the confusion. So this was a rabbit hole. 
this 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 podcast is a tough one. I avoid um, this topic at all costs. <laughs> well, I, I know, and 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 it's most people do, but I spend a lot of time talking with people about this, and it makes them uncomfortable. But uh, it's I, important. Yeah, it's important. It's important to know that you're the one in control, and you have an apparatus, a thinking apparatus called the mind that is truly miraculous because you can navigate anything and get out of whatever you're feeling today and move on with your life there we have um chapter if you want to read more about this we have chapter 11 in the book is mental autonomy and free will and um and i often recommend that people read uh Dr. Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning, um, when they're doing this topic, because uh, Dr. Frankl really, um, that book changed my life. It, you know, he talks about in your mind, you are totally free. You can think, you can make your own reality. Yeah. Yeah. And also the chapter in the book on the positive drive principle. Yes. And, and I believe everybody should read Man's Search for Meaning because it's such a powerful story about the freedom that we have within our mind. Yes. Thank you everyone so much for listening today. If you or someone you know is seeking help for a substance use problem or other habitual behavior, or you want help breaking free and moving past recovery as well, you can reach us at 888-424-2626 or through our websites, thefreedommodel.org and soberforever.net. At soberforever.net, you'll see all about our beautiful residential retreat, the St. Jude Retreat. Thefreedommodel.org is our hub and it has a ton of free resources and information, including some videos, these podcasts, free eBooks, and information about our at-home private instruction program. Uh, Listeners to this podcast can get free digital editions of the Freedom Model for Addictions and the Freedom Model for the Family. Um, Enter coupon code FREEDOM100 at checkout. You go right to thefreedommodel.org, hit the Our Books tab, and choose the book that you want, FREEDOM100 at checkout. You can also get paperback and Kindle versions on Amazon or one of the other online retailers. Um, You can follow us on social media, including Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and subscribe to the Freedom Model YouTube channel. We have three private Facebook groups uh, for people to discuss their experiences, breaking free from addiction and recovery. They are the Freedom Model group, moving beyond addiction and recovery, and families moving beyond addiction and recovery. From everyone here at the Freedom Model, we wish you well. And if you need detox, we always recommend Gallus Detox. That's G-A-L-L-U-S Detox.com. All right. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye, everybody.